Shalom, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Seekers of Meaning. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address, the Director of Jewish Sacred Aging. As you know, these podcasts, Seekers of Meaning podcasts, are designed to explore some of the issues that we face in, during the longevity revolution. If you'd like to contact us with some ideas or suggestions, just feel free to email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. One of the most interesting things that we're exploring and discovering in so many of the workshops that we're doing around the country and actually North America in congregations is this rebirth of interest in our relationship with the sacred or God. And to further that in a very, very exciting and passionate way, uh, we welcome two distinguished colleagues, uh, Rabbi Richard Agler and Rabbi Rifat Sonsino, to our Seekers of Meaning podcast. They are the editors and contributors of a brand new, very, very, very interesting and powerful book. And if my colleagues are watching or listening, this is something that you need to get a hold of. It's called A God We Can Believe In. A God We Can Believe In. It's being published basically around the time that this podcast is going to be posting. And so welcome, Rifat. Welcome, Richard. Uh, it's nice to see you. Hope you're well. Hope you're well. Thank, Thank you. you. So. Let me get right to the, the beginning here, which is a heart. You write in one of the introductions, there's a sense, there's a sense of a place, quote, for a living non-mythical God, a living non-mythical God, unquote. What does that mean? Well, um, I want you to know that I, as a rabbi, take my religion very seriously. Um, and I'm distressed that some people in the Jewish community and also outside of the Jewish community um, are still um, using a, a God concept that is pretty primitive and, and childish. And, um, and therefore, um, many people don't know how to deal with the God concept and therefore, they, they tend to ignore the whole thing. Yet, I, I take my religion seriously, and I want to uh, deal with a God concept that gives me uh, meaning and sense and something that I can believe in. And, and the God concept that I chose is the one that I've been thinking about for a number of years. And I'm very thankful that Rabbi Agler contacted me about a year ago and proposed that we edit a book on this topic. And I got very excited about it. And uh, I'm glad we put together uh, a book that I hope will have an impact on the Jewish community as we go forward. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, if I can add, um, yes, you know, we have these mythical teachings and many of them are beautiful and powerful and inspiring on a metaphorical level and so on. But there are others that, you know, simply uh, are not acceptable to 21st century educated adults. I mean, does God really intervene in history on the side of the just? Does God really answer the prayers of the deserving? Does God really protect his, yes, his faithful and chosen? Does God really execute righteous judgment? I mean, much of our annual cycle, our liturgies and celebrations are rooted in just such beliefs. 
and they're untenable to so many of our people. And as a result, they become a disincentive to Jewish uh, engagement, commitment, and affiliation. And um, it was important we felt to uh, you know put this uh, give uh, some some uh, um, dressing you know to some e extrapolation on these concepts. And we had twenty seven seven different you know authors uh, join us um, in explaining you know uh, uh, God we can believe in yeah just just simply that. I mean, the. Oh, oh, go ahead, Rifat. Go ahead. Uh, um, uh, one of my, uh, one of our colleagues just contacted me today, and asked me, uh, you know, the title of our book is "The God We Can Believe In." So he asked me, "Does God believe in you?" That that that, that question is is not rational for me. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm dealing with God that is an energy, a force. For him to ask me if God believes in me or not, uh, we're living in two different worlds. So then the question didn't make sense to me. And I'm afraid that other people will react the same way. You, you write it. And, 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 and again, this is a collection of essays <coughs> um, that span a, a very wide variety of um affiliations, let's put it that way, denominational and non-denominational affiliations and points of view. Um, what is religious naturalism? You, some of the essays talk about that, and, and uh, I'm concerned that people will, will say, well, religious naturalism, um, uh, is it like a, God is a tree? Is it the ocean? Can you unpack that, uh, that concept? Because you, it, it, it appears in the book. Well, religious naturalism uh, is based on the idea that uh, religion uh, um, is to be taken seriously, and um, religion simply means um, our response to the universe as it is today. If God is the energy of the universe, then we need to be able to relate to God on a rational, uh, scientific way. And, and, and I'm comfortable with that. What I'm not comfortable is if uh, God appears as a, as, a, as a being with a rational mind who can um, um, ignore me, accept me, punish me, and I, I have a hard time dealing with that kind of a concept. Um, well, let me just, because one of the essays, um, I think with uh, Micah Ellenson's essay, um, talks about the, the God as the, quote, consciousness of the universe, unquote. What Could you just, is that mind? Is it pure mind? Is that what uh, uh, Rabbi Ellenson is talking about? You know, there are many different uh, formulations that our various authors have used. Uh, naturalism is one of them. Um, energy, consciousness, uh, you know, are others. Sometimes it's easier, you know, as Maimonides and others have taught, uh, to use what we call negative theology, that God is not X, that God is not Y, that God is not Z, um, just because, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to understand. So, uh, you know, we have a various numbers of la languages uh, is tricky here. Language is limited. Uh, God is unlimited. 
Um, so there's there's always a uh, you know a little bit of a, a difficulty in describing exactly what we want to say. Some people say non-theistic, non-dualist, um, uh, you know, not supernatural. Uh, these kinds of words that we use. So, but again, as uh, as Rafat was saying, all of them are things that you know it's it's disengaging ourselves from the myths that are clearly myths that we have sometimes promulgated them as truths. And when our people look at them and see them and say, you know, uh, I don't believe God acts in this way. I have a relationship with God, but it's not, it's not a God like this. And uh, again, we have so many of our sacred texts and ceremonies are, are filled with a God that is simply not believable. And I hope that helps to answer your question a little bit. So Richard, let me, let me, let me go in a little different direction. Cause what your essay, one of your, the thing you wrote about prayer book, I think it was called prayer book, prop prayer book problems. Easy for me to say, um, about just the nature of, of prayer and the, and the vocabulary of the prayer book. Walk me through what you were trying to get, um, out, uh, especially with the, we're limited, are we not, by, in essence, the English language? Um, so, and even even the Hebrew, even, even the Hebrew language. Yeah. So, talk <laughs> um, to me about what that essay that you wrote. So, prayer is the way that you know we kind of most directly attempt to connect with God. Um, and again, we have in the Siddur lots of obstacles uh, to that. We ask God to do things that God manifestly cannot or does not do, um, and this is a problem. Um, and uh, we ask God, you know, to, to intervene in our lives. Um, you know, we have no evidence or experience, you know, other than the coincidental or the anecdotal, you know, that this actually happens. Um, we we ask God to preserve us, you know, based on our our merit. Uh, okay, merit is a good thing, and we should always be living righteously and goodly as, as best we can, because that's the best way to live. But does that mean that we're going to be protected from calamity? You know, I think we understand that that's just not the way that life works or that God works. Prayer is, um, there's a wonderful Hebrew word, it's lehit palel, which is reflexive. reflexive. Um, and, and, you know, prayer maybe might, might be better reimagined as, you know, speaking to our highest selves, our, our internal selves? How can we awaken the godly uh, within us and, and around us? Uh, I think if we, you know, reformulated and reimagined uh, our Siddur, which may be my next project, by the way, um, uh, to, uh, to reflect those kinds of things, um, you know, I, I think we would be serving our people uh, and uh, strengthening their their spiritual connection to their faith um, better than we are doing right now. Yeah. Uh, from from my per perspective, prayer is simply the expression of our wishes. Um, it's the way we uh, express our hopes and expectations. Uh, it's not the way that um, we we would expect an answer from God or not. That's irrelevant. Um, prayer gives us perspective on life. It is, as uh, Richard indicated, it's uh, reflexive. It's something that we do to ourselves and by ourselves. So 
we have a problem with the prayer book because the prayer book is based on the idea of a dialogical relationship that we pray and God answers. I don't expect an answer from God. The only thing I expect is that I will have clarity of mind so that I can express my hopes and expectations in a in a such a way that will give me a new perspective on life. That the implication of what I'm saying is tremendous, especially when it comes to prayers of dealing with health and other things. Uh, when people expect answers, when they shouldn't be expecting an answer, they should expect perspective, not answers. One of the things that, that I found in, in our work um, is the, and I'm interested in your, your, your response if you're finding it too, there still seems to be within the normative congregational experience a reluctance to really shine a light on exactly what you guys are talking about. Who is God? Who are we praying to or what are we praying to when you sit in shul or attend services on, on Zoom? What does this really, really mean? Um, it's just like <clears throat> we, we use the vocabulary in prayer and in worship, but we rarely ask people to say and try to dialogue on what they're worshiping. Is this, you know, I'd like to just, could you reflect on that? I think you're 100% correct. I, I, I think, you know, the activity of what we call worship, uh, you know, especially in recent years, you know, there's an emphasis on music, on communal singing, on, on you know, all those kinds of things. Um, there's uh, very often a focus in the congregation on social justice projects, which are, are wonderful. Um, but at the same time, uh, we're not connecting people to a God that they can believe in, you know, to, to a living God. And this is uh, definitely, I think, a shortcoming in, in Jewish life. Um, you know, it's not, I don't think by coincidence that, you know, Jews in, in surveys for decades now are the least regular, other than the Orthodox, are the least regular attendees, you know, at, at worship uh, on a regular basis of all the various, you know, denominations. And I think a good part of this, again, is because there's a disconnect between the, the liturgy as it you know has come to us, even even the revised liturgies, um, because there's just not a God that, that speaks to people or that people can speak to in a way that's meaningful for them. Rifat, you, you write on um, the holy days. Um, you have this essay where you walk us through the calendar and in search of in search of God in the holidays, we just finished, you know, Pesach, we're about to go to Shavuot. Um, we're only a couple of months away from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You, you, you talk about a restructuring in your essay on the holidays. Could you just unpack a little bit of that? Yeah, um, I, I try to reformulate the, uh, the, um, the expectations for each of the holidays <clears throat> because I want to base my, my uh, analysis on a rational um, uh, on a rational dialogue. So, for example, for for me, Passover, for example, is a, stands for freedom, um, the hope for freedom, the hope for liberty, and all that. Um, and and the same thing for other holidays. 
each holiday has its own message that is centered on our hopes and expectations. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to turn things towards us and not um, based on what God will do or will not do. I don't know what God will do or will not do. I know what I can do to relate. And that's what I expect. Uh, one of the essays uh, by uh, Rabbi Hillel Cohen um, talks about reverent agnosticism, which is, um, which is really a great line. Reverent agnosticism, uh, and God is a predicate, not the subject. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, for, you know, translate that for us over here in New Jersey. Yeah, I, I thought that was a fantastic, fantastic formulation. I was not familiar with it before. Well, an agnostic, as we know, is someone who has uh, questions and doubts. And don't we all? Um, how can any of us not? Uh, again, God being so much beyond any human understanding, we can't put God in a box. So there are always questions and doubts. And maybe if we were honest, uh, we would all say that we were on some degree agnostic. But at the same time, to be reverent about it not to be dismissive about our faith, to understand that, as uh, it's been put before, that uh, the life of a Jew or really any you know faithful, decent person should be one of divine service. Um, and how do we, you know, despite our doubts or with our doubts, uh, live an honorable and uh, a reverent and, and a, even, you know, a borderline holy life? Um, so, yeah, I love the way that he put those two words together. Once again, we're speaking with uh, Rabbis Richard Agler and Rifat Sonsino about their about to be or recently published book. We're waiting to have the publisher tell them when called A God We Can Believe In. And again, to, to my colleagues who may be listening or watching this over the course of either today or the next couple of weeks, um, when it's published, check it out. Uh, you'll probably be able to get it either at your local Barnes and Noble bookstore or The Great God Amazon. I would assume we'll have it. But for, as you're planning a program for next year, um, I would suggest having read the, 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 the proofs of the book for, to, in prep for this, I would suggest that this could be a fantastic adult education um, class and even a confirmation class because we, we, don't, we don't do enough with our kids to expose them to the freedom of saying, look, this is part of the conversation that you should be having as a Jew. Um, a debate with yourself about who you're list, who who you're praying to, and what you're worshiping, um, and the the essays are accessible. Uh, they're not, you know, so you know, PhD scholarly level that nobody. So that's a that's a brief commercial for for and 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 speaking of that, following up on that, the end of the book part. Richard, let me let me if if I might let me uh, just do you one better, so to speak, on on yeah. that comment. I can't let it go by. Um, go ahead. You know, ac actually, one of the professors at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, uh, Gary Zola, who right. was nice enough to uh, write an endorsement for the book, uh, has used this the introduction already. Uh, you know, as a lesson, you know, with his uh, with his students on the rabbinical level. Um, and uh, so, and he he also invited me to speak to one of his classes on these themes. And, and subjects. So, uh, you know, not just for uh, confirmation students, not just for adult education, but even rabbinical students. Uh, uh, and how, rabbis, how, much, you know. how much the more so with rabbinic students? Exactly. Yeah, there you go. There you go. What? And we did, and we did, excuse me, and we did, as you point out, 
write this for a lay audience. We did not write this for, for professors, for rabbis, for academics, etc. Uh, you know, we asked all of our uh, authors to address, uh, you know, what we called educated lay people. So, thank you. So, at the end of the book, um, to help people put this into practice, uh, part four is a learning guide. What What is that? Because it's several pages. Walk me, what is that learning guide designed to do? Yeah, well, just as we say, you know, it's to, it's to kind of, okay, you've read the essays, hopefully, or you've read some of them. And now what are the implications, you know, for them? The kind of questions that you're asking us, you know, today and right now, what does this really mean? And, you know, like a lot of, a lot of these essays, in fact, most of them, they may raise more questions than they answer. And they're suitable for discussion and, and writing and journaling and, and, you know, all those kind of things than anybody who's serious about, um, about, uh, about pursuing, you know, and understanding, deepening their understanding might, uh, might grow with them. I, I think the book, uh, the book itself creates uh, a new, uh, it creates a new movement. Uh, what we really want is reformulate the entire prayer book. We, we take prayer very seriously. If prayer is going to give us perspective on life, then the prayers have to be reformulated so that they are meaningful to the person who's praying. Prayer has to be taken seriously. And if you're praying and trying to get perspective on life, then the formulation has to be changed. And I've been playing around to see how we can do that. And it's not an easy thing to do, to rethink the entire prayer book. It's a major project, but ultimately it's something that we need to do for the Jewish people. It's interesting you mentioned that and use the word revolution about that, because in a recent podcast that I think po we posted uh, a week ago, uh, Larry Hoffman, uh, the Emeritus Professor of Liturgy, uh, Ritual, at HUC in New York, he also basically said, we're at a stage now that we really do need a revolution in worship and prayer. So, you know, you guys, this may be the start of something much, much grander uh, on, a, on, a, um, on a macro level. Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, well, well we, to your point, we hope so. Um, you know, when we kind of started this, uh, we were mindful of Ecclesiastes' uh, admonition of, of the making of books, there is no end. And we really simply didn't want to create another book. We did have our agenda, as it were, is to go ahead and to, uh, yeah, to maybe make some impact and to cause some serious conversations and discussions about this. I want to say about prayer, it's a very familiar joke, I bet, to most everybody watching or listening to this podcast. You know, uh, someone asked Schwartz, how come you go to shul all the time? You're not really that religious. And he says, yeah, it's it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. I, but my friend Garfinkel, who I like to sit next to, you know, he, he goes and he talks to God. Uh, I like to go and talk to Garfinkel. And, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, uh, but so many, and that's the, the, the reality for so many of our people. You know, they go to shul to talk to Garfinkel or to their friends, their neighbors, you know, their that's fellow congregants and so on and so forth. Uh, but very few of them talk to God. And as Rafat was saying, uh, it's understandable because the Siddur doesn't make it easy for them to do that. Or, you know, they're looking, no, 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 this is not my God. Okay, I'll sing along. I'll talk, I'll talk to Garfinkel. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever it is that I'm going to do in shul. But, but interacting with God is, is unfortunately, it seems like a minority 
a minority activity, and we have to address that. Are people scared to talk about the word God, you think, in our so-called sophisticated modern They don't know how to deal with that. Either they go and they they, uh, repeat the old traditional statements which they don't believe in, um, or don't deal with God at all. My fear is that people are going to give up the whole thing instead of taking that seriously and struggle with it. And we are struggling with it, trying to come up with something rational that will be acceptable, that is meaningful, and that will give people perspective on on their life. That's not an easy job to do. No, it's not. Part of that... Go ahead, Richard. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, many people have already given up. Uh, you know, they've kind of closed their account with, uh, with, with Judaism. They, they just simply, they look at the prayer book, that's not me. And, and they, 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 they do pursue spirituality, as we well know, in, in other avenues. And uh, we need to be there. One of the conversations I've had uh, with uh, a number of our colleagues, you know, since kind of embarking on this project and speaking about it with them, is people, rabbis in particular, will say, well, yes, I, I understand that we don't take the Siddur literally, that it's uh, it's meant to be evocative, that it's meant to build on Midrash and, and things like that. And, and there are ways and levels, you know, to go and make prayer meaningful. And and the response I have to that is, okay, that's great for rabbis because we know all that stuff and, and we know the Midrashim and we know the interpretations and we know that it may not really mean exactly what it says it means. But for, you know, uh, just people who don't have that level of, of Jewish education, um, they just look at it and they close their account with it. And, and it's, it's just not acceptable. A Siddur in particular needs to be entry level, uh, entry level friendly. It, it needs to be, people need to look at it and not say, gee, how do I, and, and by doing all, I mean, how hard do you have to work just to pray? It shouldn't be that hard, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to find the meaning, you know, uh, that, that you have to, under uncover uh, while you're just trying to talk to God, you know, in, in some meaningful way, or speak with God, or to address God, or feel God, you know, whatever it might be. We have to do better than we're doing. One of the one of the ways, and we're finding this in the work that we are doing in Jewish Sacred Aging, that uh, especially boomers uh, who have really pioneered a lot of this, this um, real resurgence in creating rituals for life stages that didn't exist uh, a century, 50 years ago, a generation ago. Um, and uh, one of the essays, I think by Rami Schwartzer, uh, talks about um, rituals uh, in the context of, of, of um, the body and, and relationship and of, of to, to the divine. But talk to me a little bit about the role and power in your experience and in your editing the book of the power of ritual? Well, ritual is important because it should be expressive of our expectations and hopes. Um, It's something that we are committed to. It gives us discipline. It gives us, again, perspective. It uh, it, It gives us new hope about our relationship with the rest of the universe. And also, it connects us with our people. It connects us with the 
those who do the same thing. And, and that, that is very important. When we do things together, uh, expressing our hopes and expectations, then we have a stronger bond with one another. And that ritual does that for me. I think uh, to add to that, um, you know, it's interesting uh, with life cycle ceremonies, because unlike, let's say, the, the Friday night, the Saturday morning, the holiday, the festival liturgy, um, rabbis have a fair amount of leeway and creativity, or a lot more leeway and creativity, when it comes to fashioning life cycle ceremonies. And whether it's for a, a brit milah, you know, baby naming, or a bar mitzvah, or a wedding, or a funeral, you know, we have the ability to kind of tailor them and make them more real. We're just speaking to a family. And, and how are they going to, you know, uh, respond to this? We can't just use the standard highfalutin language. And as a result, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of creativity and adaptation uh, of those life cycle rituals uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, on the personal uh, family, you know, kind of a level. Um, and that's been encouraging because rabbis know that they can't get away with, you know, oh, God is going to do this for us and God is going to do that for us. So we found, we've found language, collectively speaking, uh, to make it real, to, to make it believable. We need to kind of take that to the next step with, with our more public and, and widespread ceremonies. And but the, interestingly enough, also, uh, um, one of the essays in the book by uh, Dr. Weiss, Edmund Weiss, talks about you know, some of the funeral um, and mourning prayers of Baruch Dayan Hamet, Kaddish, et cetera, El Mole Rachamim, and, you know, the superstitions involved with that, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, he kind of concludes that, but in a moment of mourning, in a moment of crisis, in a moment of, of um, pain, comfort takes precedence over reason. That if you can bring, if the words can bring comfort, that's really our job. That's religion's job. Um, and I found it a very interesting the way he just concludes that after this, you know, uh, serial uh, analysis of some of the major morning prayers. But comfort is, and the human and relationships, and the power of presence. Um, really. We can't lose that, can't, correct? I mean, that, that's, that's super important. Absolutely, and 100%. And uh, it's, it's the way we go about how do we present it? You know, how, how do we present comfort? How do we present comfort and meaning and truth uh, all together at the same time? Uh, that's a challenge, but I, but I think we're up to it. And yeah, sometimes the tradition as it is, you know, without without the you know fear or favor is is absolutely beautiful and meaningful and comforting and in many ways it's all that it should be uh, but it, again as we've been saying too often it, it falls short or it disappoints us or it, it misleads us or it it just it doesn't satisfy us real fast before we run out of time one last quick easy question you're publishing this book We've talked a little bit about the need for a revolution in prayer, worship, a theological revolution. Um, a couple of years from now, after this book is out, people have gotten to it. What do you want to have happen? What would be, what would give you just saying, damn, that was, that was worth the work? What is that? Rafat? Well, 
I, I like to see um, um, a revision of the prayer book um, from beginning to end. That's going to be a major project. Uh, reformulate the prayer so that they become meaningful to the person who's praying. Uh, they are not based on uh, superstition. They are not based on false expectations, but they are really um, addressing the, the real needs of the individual. The, the prayer book project is a major one, but it's going to outlive us. It, it, it's going to take a number of years, a number of years for this to be a reality. But if we don't do that, then we're going to lose a lot of people um, who will move out of the synagogue uh, as a religious institution. And I am very, I, I take religion seriously, as I said at the very beginning, and I want it to be meaningful and satisfactory to each individual. Richard? Yeah, I would say amen to that. I, I mean, the Siddur, the Mansur, uh, you know, the High Holy Prayer Book, as well as the, you know, the annual cycle kind of prayer book. Um, yeah, we need to offer our people, our educated, modern, 21st century people who care about God, who care about growing with God, who, are, uh, who have spiritual lives. Uh, we need to give them something that will allow them to pursue their spiritual lives uh, under a Jewish uh, uh, framework. Because, yeah, otherwise, without that, you know, we talk about God, Torah, and Israel. But without God, um, it kind of all dissipates. And we've, we've already seen this, you know, in spades over the last decades. Uh, it's, it's high time. It's past time. And Rabbi, we're going to be working on it. We're going to be working on it. Rabbi Richard Agler, Rabbi Rifat Sonsino, editors of this uh, wonderful and exciting and challenging new book coming out now, A God We Can Believe In. Uh, Rifat, Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Con continue. Good luck with the book. Uh, keep in touch. And um, we hope to see you on the book tour. Maybe <laughs> get <laughs> you on you. Oprah or something. Thank you for having Take us. Take care, guys. Thank you thank for having us. Thank My you so pleasure. much. Thank you. And to all thank of you, you, thank you for, for joining us on today's edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Um, Remember, if you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help us support this work and continue these podcasts, go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, and click on the, and follow the prompts on the donate button. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubeckin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And again, thank you to our producer, Steve Lubeckin. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and I look forward to greeting you on our next Seekers of Meaning TV show and podcast from Jewish Sacred Aging. In the meantime, Stay safe, everyone. Be kind to each other. Stay healthy. Shalom.